Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 24, Act 2, Michael Wiggins' Art is Always the Answer, recorded March 30th, 2019, in New York City. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie But they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives allowed are the only roads you can see Just remember the walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now, it up now. Hey, hey, TA listeners Thank you so much for listening and remember to tell your peeps to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts so they get the notification first of a new episode. It is clear that you have been doing this, so we really appreciate you and all of your networking friends. But don't forget, follow us on the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, it's all happening. And that is truly how we grow our community. And we're so very happy you're a part of ours. Pop those earbuds in. I want to touch on a few things. Recently, uh, it was Veterans Day, where we celebrate and thank those who have fought for our freedom. My grandfather, my uncles, and many of my cousins, including my cousin, Michelle Jones, served in the military. And I thank them and all service people especially our service people of color who historically have not been received with the same respect as their white counterparts. For example, uh, many black veterans after returning from World War I were lynched or violently attacked while actually in their uniforms. Um, I recently finished ta Coates' The Water Dancer, um, what a prolific writer, which I, I knew that as a journalist, I knew that, but um, reading this novel was something I couldn't have expected. So if you haven't read this novel, please, please do. The narrator is the main character and his name is Hiram and he is uh, an enslaved man and you hear his journey. Um, he takes us through his journey. Um, this novel is heartbreaking and moving and devastatingly beautiful. And it's also not lost on me that this book was released in this year where we mark 400 years of slavery. I went to the book launch um, or one of the many book launches uh, events at the King's Theater in Brooklyn where journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones moderated a conversation um, and Nicole um, wrote 
1619 Project in New York Times. She also recorded the accompanying uh, podcast, um, which is also something I recommend listening to, reading and getting, um, opening our eyes. Um, that I've also talked on here about the 400 years of inequality project, which has been doing um, many different projects throughout this year to mark the observance and remembrance and also to look to the future. Um, and so over the course of this year, um, all of these different, um, moments or events that I've attended and then continue to review, um, read, um, ingest, <laughs> digest, etc. Um, they've had, they've made me have to look more deeply inside. Um, for example, the novel, while it is fiction, it's based on um, a lot of research that Tanahasi um, did and sort of found through slave narratives. Um, this particular person that then he built out into a story. Um, and he talks a little bit about how this, the book began, which it wasn't, it didn't start in this, um, one man's journey. There were going to be multiple voices, but, um, I'm really glad that he went down this path. Um, as I was reading it, actually, I was reading it through an audio book, not, um, the book itself. Um, just cause that's the way I can, um, I devoured it. Like I listened, it takes me a long time to read books, but this one I read pretty quickly. And there are moments that I read or listened to that felt so incredibly real. There are, are is language that just um, is able to depict a moment, a place, uh, um, the sounds that, you know, you just feel everything. And there's just these moments where, um, I don't know how to say it, but I literally don't know how to describe it. But like, you know, the narrator or the person who's reading it was Joe Morton, who's an who's who plays Papa Pope. You know that guy. Um, he reads something and like it like surges through your heart. It's 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 crazy. It was crazy to listen and 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 experience this story. And I think I actually have to go back. But what it's made me think about or realize is that I am here. Because someone who could call their master father and they survived. I'm here because somebody in my past, many people in my past survived. And that is something that is, um, I feel like a lot of responsibility, but also like I probably shouldn't recognize this a long time ago, but I don't know, something about this year, these particular, um, uh, historical markings and novels and just, I don't know, there's something happening. So I talk about all of this because in this particular act with Michael Wiggins, our conversation gets real personal. Uh, at one point I talk about not fully understanding my own power and, um, in the context of the conversation, Michael actually thinks that I'm talking about my, um, my power in the workplace, um, which totally made sense. But I think what I was actually talking about was the kind of strength that I possess that is fortified by generations and generations of my ancestors surging the power in me. <laughs> so enjoy all the rants in this chat <laughs> because we do, we rant or Michael rants and I listen and then I say things. Um, Michael also shares more about his work in the arts and arts education. Here is episode 24, act two, Michael Wiggins, 
art is always the answer. I have like five different threads that we could go down. I Let's do them all at the with, same time. Well, one I wanted to I want to just go back for a moment about the journey of our of generations. I was thinking I know more about my mother's um mother and father than than my father's uh family, but um you said something about how your your parents uh maybe it was your father came from a family of sharecroppers. You know, my father, my father was, um, they lived in a coal mining town Mm. in like, um, the, the blue, blue mountains. So like uh, Virginia, Tennessee, like someplace where the States all come together, Mm. like Pennington gap is what it's called. It was the home of niggerhead rock. Yes. Yeah, it was like a rock. Now they call it person head rock. But you speak, mm-hmm. this is when my, yeah, like, so you can see like they have the checks. I think there's a, there was a bank or something. I remember seeing one of the checks. It's like the home of nigger head rock. Yeah. And a nice, clear, crystal clear street. That's America. So yeah, my people come from, from, from that, you know, I mean, the, the great migration was still taking place when my, my parents went from the mm-hmm. South to the North and mm-hmm. my father is, I think what saved my father was going to the service. Mm-hmm. My, my grandfather, yeah. my grandfather was, uh, lived in Alabama and moved, right. he was in the service and then was a part of the great migration moved yeah. with his mother and sister, um, to Chicago. Right. And, yeah, yeah. They went to Chicago. My, mm-hmm. I think my father's people went to Chicago first and then to Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you had, then you had he, factories he there, you had did, jobs, mm-hmm, factories, jobs. He ended and, up being a post, uh, working for the postal service yeah, jobs. And you had mm-hmm. the civil service, those mm-hmm. kind of jobs, postal jobs. And then yep. you had the fact that the, the armed forces were integrated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So those are spaces in which a lot of black, you know, black middle-class people now can point back to those, mm-hmm. those opportunity spaces being yeah. created. And those spaces, a lot of those spaces now are, they're limited or, or gone. You know, they're mm-hmm. not the kind of handholds, but yeah. that's why I'm here. I mean, if it hadn't been for my father joining the service, I doubt that we would have been able to, to leave orbit, you know? Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know. I have no idea what my father's father did. He didn't meet him until he was 16. Right. That's America. He had a stepfather who was not seemed to be not a great person, but I don't know yeah. what he did either. Yeah. And my grandmother, uh, I also didn't know her very so seriously, well. Didn't they do an amazing yeah. job? Because if you look like with one of your colleagues, you're like, they'll say stuff like, and my, my mother is a nurse and then my mother's mother mm-hmm. was a nurse and mm-hmm. then my, my father was a lawyer and then on the back of them, they owned a store. It's like, and then you go back, you're like, I don't know who my father's father was. Gosh, I wish they'd done more for me when I was growing up. You're like, well, I mean, they had a lot to do. <laughs> they did. Good God. I mean, my dad, my dad, basically he said, you know, what happened? long stories, but and it's not my story necessarily to tell, but his, his, um, parents weren't aware, uh, had him out of wedlock yeah. and he used to tell us stories about how when he was like three, two or three, he went to go live with his uncle Bill. And apparently what was happening was my grandmother was finding a, a husband. Oh yeah. And then once she got married, she brought her son with him and they were a happy little family until they had more kids. And then the, the, the relationship shifted. Um, and so when he fought and he didn't know that this guy was not his father. Right. So he didn't understand why all of a sudden now he's not Uh. loved and, um, 
and, and, you know, definitely not uh, having some domestic violence. I'm sure the way he would talk about it. I mean, and then it was parsed, you know, he wouldn't yeah, share they never talk about it. Um, about it. Well, my dad was a sharer, but he, he was, he was careful about what the story was. Yeah. And, um, he told me about the time that he met his father for the first time. So he knew that he, he knew that he had a father. He wasn't quite sure where he was. Um, and when, so what happened when he was coming home from school one day and this, this guy who he did know in his neighborhood said, your father's around the corner. He wants to talk to you. Wow. So I guess he goes and he meets this man and he, you know, like I have a picture of the two of them together. Like they look very, very similar. Wow. And, um, he then explains my grandfather then explains but my grandfather who I did end up knowing, uh, I didn't know the stepdad, but I knew Charlie, Charlie Abercrombie was his name. My last name could have been Abercrombie, by the way. Anyway, uh, (laughs) but body is so much better, right? We like body. We like it. We'll we'll, we'll take keep it. But anyway, uh, he meets this man and his, he says, listen, I, I moved to Chicago because that's where my family's from or I, I had more opportunity there. I wanted to support you. I wanted to bring you with me actually. But, um, he, meaning the stepdad threatened to kill both of you. Mm. If, I contacted you. So mm. I've stayed away, but this is, this is where I live. Please write me, please come and visit me. Like I want to have a relationship with you. That's deep. And like, could you imagine, you know, living in a home where now you're a little bit bigger so you can fend for yourself, but still like, you're also wanting to protect your mother and your brothers. And he, you know, here's this person who could be your savior essentially who seems like a nice, he seemed like a great guy. Um, and just saying like, come away, come with me. So my dad didn't go with him, but what he did do is that he ended up getting a, a scholarship to, um, spring, uh, spring Hill college, which was in mobile, Alabama. So it was a different part of where he lived and he never went home again. Wow. And what he ended up doing was taking internships in Chicago and he would stay with his father. So he would spend the summers with wow. getting to know his father yeah. Um, and you know, working and doing things that made sense for his life, I guess. Um, and that's where he ended up meeting my aunt and then ultimately my mother. That's crazy. So, you know, on the one hand, if, if, you know, if things had changed in some way, it's possible that I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like when you really think about it. Must accept what is. Exactly. You know, and he ended up having a really good relationship with his father um, who was from my perspective as a little girl, uh, he died when I was 16. He, um, he was very quiet. He didn't say much, but he had, um, this sort of strong, quiet presence. And I would just like curl up and and whenever we were in Chicago and I saw him, I would just curl up around him and that I, we wouldn't talk. I would just curl and like love being around him. That's what I remember. That's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, here's these stories are, you know, but that's why I I asked you about your, your, your growing up, because I feel like, you know, that, that whole experience definitely shaped where my dad was when he moved from this very rural Southern space to one of the, the large, the most economically advantaged, Mm -hmm. um, county in this, I think in the country, let alone specifically New York city, sorry, New York, but, um, you know, like poor Washington is a very affluent town. Right. And yet we are still very middle-class. He's a teacher, but he's teaching kids whose parents are on wall street, right. lawyers, doctors, et cetera, right. owners. And 
there's uh, there's got to be a whole lot of imposter syndrome and sure. on the idea of the intersectionality of being a black man um you know with all these all this past behind you and trying to live in these spaces which is often what i'm asking of, of myself like who am i in these spaces do i code switch or do i say exactly who i am no matter what and i can't i've decided i can't keep i can't <laughs> i don't have that a capability like yeah. i'm just gonna be who i but i was questioning even that choice for a very long time and so to go back to like, oh, you know, I had to find out and figure out which colleges I wanted to go to. Well, actually, that was good for me. Right. That that idea of like needing to figure it out, I, they gave me sort of a, a roadmap. I was told a SUNY school or or a, or a, um, or community school. And I was like, OK, I, OK, well, if you go to community school, then I'll get you a car and and um, and then you can go to any college if you want after you get your associates. And I was like, but that means I have to live here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm, no. Uh, mm, no. Uh, so I want to go away. New York State is a big state. I will find a place to go. <laughs> basically, you can and go to Canada. it was a good thing for me. Basically, yeah. well, Central New York, but it was a good thing for me to get to have that enough distance that it was easy for them to visit, but not easy for them to show right. up <laughs> out of right. nowhere. Yeah. And it was an opportunity for me to meet new people, you know, and, and all of a sudden my worldview was just, you know, starting to go like this a little bit, a little open, a little bit more open. And then eventually when I like lived in Atlanta for a while, again, my worldview is opening, opening and opening. Um, and that by the time I come back to, uh, uh, New York to go to grad school again worlds are opening right so yeah. with each sort of choice by the time I got to the new victory again worlds are just opening up in my worldview and I think a real turning point for me likely was when we did the two different sessions at face-to-face -face on diversity really and equity I feel like those conversations that we had to get ready for the first one for me, it was like, I had been, I had been, um, I don't know what the right word is, but I, I, I might've been floating a little bit and just thinking like, I'm, I'm getting this far ahead because I'm doing the work and I'm not really having to think about all the things about and, and who I am in those spaces. I'm not having to do all that thing, but you, you, those conversations made me have to think about all that. You know what? How did you get to college? How did you? When did you experience any discrimination or moments where you felt like you were you were being um, either uh, um, you know ignored or unheard or feeling resistance? Um, that it it finally dawned on me like oh oh yeah <laughs> oh oh yeah <laughs> hmm. you did not escape. I did not escape. Mm -mm. And, and I don't think I ever, th but I don't think I was ever even thinking about that. I had something to escape from. Well, that's, that was smart <laughs> of you. Otherwise you probably would have been scared. Yeah. You know, or yeah. that might've stopped you. I think there is a willful. And I, I think I probably telegraphed it early when you asked me about my past. I mean, mm -hmm. as I get old, the older and older, the more I want to let go of it. First oh. of all, I don't want to be defined by it, by either, you know, who I was and the assumptions that people can make from, me saying, you know, or, or really describing that or categorizing it or defining what was real and also my mistakes, you know, I don't want to be defined by them or I want to have grown from them. And I'd like to leave that in the past. And mm. the, 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 the spiritual and psychological 
reality is that, you know, the past is, is the past. Um, and the details of it are, they're, they're, they're subject to, to question, you know, like when I think about why am I this way? And I want to look at my parents and, the, and, and, and things that, you know, define what my relationship was with them or what my upbringing was. And there's no truth there. I think my brother experienced it completely differently and probably would think that the things I say about it are not even, are in no way accurate. But my experience, I think as a, as a black, as a black man, as a gay man, you know, growing up coming, I came out really early to myself and to other people. I think that there was a willful running away and also a willful blindness to certain to obstacles like mm. you know f screw obstacles i'm just gonna keep doing what i what i need to do and it, it is why i i think that's central if you want to know this this the 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 trajectory i loved art i wanted to be i thought that that was the highest form of of being to be involved in it and i would do anything and throw myself off that bridge just to, just to be in that space, you know, and it propelled me from my, from where I was to, 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 to where I am. And that's what, that's what happens when you're, mm -hmm. when you're working with young people. I think that there were adults in my life who showed me those things or made those things accessible mm -hmm. to me. And that's our space. That's what we're doing. So, like I used to work, you know, I was at, what was a TDF that time where the lady, the woman in the workshop was like, uh, it was like team, you know, we're not changing lives here. And I'm like, okay, well I'm out. See ya. Peace out. Mm -hmm. You know? So that was back then. Um, I know that that organization is doing some amazing stuff now, but, and that doesn't necessarily define what they were, but that's an interesting moment for me that I, I carry on because it, we are changing lives. That is what the work is about. I love this. Do you? Because it's been so confusing to me about what I'm saying. I know. And what the whole endeavor is about this podcasting, this podcasting thing that the, the people are into now. These, these, these people, these young people, these young people, <laughs> voices on the airwaves. It's what like radio. It is it's like basically radio. radio. It kind of is. It's the That's return exactly to radio. What it is. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, the other thing that I'm, I'm, I'm investigating here yeah. is why we do this work, which we're, we're, we're tackling a little bit and, and what it means and, and, um, you know, and to celebrate it. I feel like, um, you know, teachers, artists are unsung heroes and this is a way to celebrate the intersection of those things. Yes. Um, and the intersections that we find in ourselves. Yeah. So we're, that's what we're exploring, you okay. know? So it's not, it doesn't feel, I mean, it may feel arbitrary to you, but trust me, like it's, it's no, I trust it comes you. together. Coordinate body. I Always trust, trust you. me. <laughs> um, so, so you talked about TDF. We, we talked a little bit about new victory. Um, you said that you were teaching here and there in the nineties. When did you, when did you hear the term teaching artist? Um, I'm really not sure. Maybe the two thousands. I think, 
the, the fulcrum from which I spend is definitely the time at New Vic and meeting Edie and being given permission to uh, explore and being, um, feeling that there's a, it's a professional space and really learning, I think in that space and from her and from all of you, what containers the work had to go in, you know, you work these, you work in partnership with schools and you get ready, you get young people ready to see a show and there's Mm -hmm. pre and post, you know, just looking at the boxes. Mm -hmm. But I was always in teaching and learning spaces. I think there were opportunities for me even early on to like learn something and then teach immediately down to somebody else. I, you know, teaching artist, I was doing this kind of work like in 1995, I think around there, uh, Rosemary Tischler at the public theater. I was at NYU then in grad school. Um, and there was this opportunity over when it got warmer to do Shakespeare, what they called Shakespeare in the boroughs. So Rosemary Tischler would, um, she'd send over a casting announcement to NYU and they'd hook up scene partners and you would get in a van or whatever, a car, and you'd go out to these locations in Harlem and wherever in Brooklyn, and you'd get out and you'd go into the community center or you'd go into the church or wherever and you'd do your scenes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or the small theater company that was there. Uh, you'd do your scenes and then there'd be a talk back. So I did like Taming of the Shrew with my classmate and I think I did it maybe once or twice. And then I, summer was coming up and I was looking for a job and it, it was hard for her to organize it. So it was, she'd be like, I'm looking for, you know, an hour's worth of material and she'd send it over and then they'd po- post it. And it was like a, a administrative rigmarole for her. So I wrote a letter that said like, I can do this for you. I'll do this hookup for you. Like you, I'll do the, the legwork for you. And she, we had a meeting she was my, I think she'd done some workshops for us. So that's why I knew Rosemary. That's why she was using us as the, she was casting from the pool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote a letter describing what I would do. And then, so I got a contract with them somehow. I don't recall the details of, but then I was booking the, the acts mm-hmm. basically, you know, I was, I was organizing that. And then I wrote a further proposal and it became like, uh, you know, Shakespeare in the Burroughs became this thing where we went around to um, like, you know, classical, th- we, we, then the, the, where do you go? National Black Theater, I think we went to. And uh, we do Shakespeare in Harlem, Shakespeare in Brooklyn. We would go to a, you know, a church in Brooklyn or a couple of spots in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and we'd bring this show. And then they wanted to have kind of more substantial things. They're not sure what they wanted to do. So I would think I would work for them from like April to August. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to do um, a conversation with actors in the community who were not professional, but wanted to have a workshop. So we do the show and then we kind of have a little workshop. Mm. Uh, And then sometimes we'd go places the Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning. I remember t- one time we went out and it was supposed to be like high school students, but it was fifth graders and we were doing, you know, the Scottish play. We we're doing about, I'm like, how am I supposed to like, we wrote lesson, we wrote a lesson. We're supposed to be working with high school and mm-hmm. up and now you've given me fifth graders. What are we supposed to do? So we did it. We did something. And I was pretending like I knew what I was doing, <laughs> you know, writing these, these, these plans and getting people together. Mm-hmm. Then I started training the teaching artists um, so I, my, my title was curriculum coordinator and teaching artist trainer. I worked under Donna Walker Kuhn and George Wolf was there at that time. Oh, wow. Um, and then it just got to be bigger and bigger, uh, or more specific. I, I would have a, a group of, they had an ensemble of actors who would apply for this program and they were in a training program to do 
a play, Shakespeare, and then they had to work with me. They had classes and acting and singing and voice and speech and fight combat. And then they had to work with me to, to train to be teaching artists. Mm. And then they would lead these workshops and do their performances, which I did not direct. And then they also did something called The Big Show, which was like Shakespeare mad rush in an hour that I did, that I wrote and put together, cobbled together from, you know, every play in an hour, some like Commedia dell'arte version of, it was craziness. <laughs> um, and then they came in and said they want to do the mobile unit. So I think I worked there about 15 seasons. So like 1995 to 2010, I did that thereabouts. Mm-hmm. And Oscar was in by that point, and mm-hmm. then I left. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wonder if I don't know the the history of that, but the the public works that they have now. It doesn't come out of that, but no? that okay. this is the the stuff I described preceded it. Prece- right. I, I just wondered if it had segued into that from this work, but maybe not. I, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, I pay attention in a very weird way so like I was just doing the work and I think that there were and I wasn't very strategic so I'm sure you can go back and find flyers from Shakespeare in Brooklyn Shakespeare in Harlem mm-hmm. for 15 years and that's what I did with mm-hmm. them that's every almost every year or every year I mean I remember doing something with you at the at the public but it wasn't yeah then I, I had a I had my theater company yeah in the Bronx and we did a partnership so I brought them mm. up for that so what made you apply to be a teaching artist at the new victory money probably i mean the the primary motivation for working in america is to make money so that you don't die (laughs) yeah because it's a capitalist society but but what was it about so you didn't even know what the new victory was um i knew that i needed to make money and i was and i i I don't remember exactly but there must have been some sort of advertisement that they were hiring teaching artists and i cobbled together some sort of resume Mm -hmm. and i was doing significant work i mean i've been working at the public Mm -hmm. for years before that and i had my own theater company Mm -hmm. since like 1998 and i was i had money from department of youth and cultural development i think i had a dycd contract at that point probably and i know i had money from somewhere in the 2000s around that time from the Department of Cultural Affairs mm-hmm. for my theater company, Mudbone. And we had a studio in in uh, the South Bronx maybe two years after that or something. But, you know, I'd had my company at, we were at NYU and we'd done uh, a couple of plays here and there. And so I needed, ex- I needed to make extra money or I needed to make some money. Mm. Um, so I applied for that. I'm going to tell, I'm, you're reminding, okay. We're gonna we're gonna talk more about Mudbone yeah. and how it started and you were on the just, board, you remember? I I was I was president of the board for yeah. a minute. Yeah. Um, I just when you said money, I was like, Michael, you never deposited your checks. I, I this, didn't. I might be violating some HR things, but before the days before direct deposit or mm. or maybe you hadn't signed up, but like. <laughs> pick up your check on a Thursday and we would have a stack of checks. (laughs) It's like, okay, we need to, and you were the reason why we started mailing checks. Really? Yes. Because it was like, but you still didn't actually deposit them even when we mailed them to you. I was probably confused (laughs) about something. Uh, Anyway. um, So you said that you started Mudbone in 1998. Yeah, I think so. 
I, I'm sure right. I know this history, but please remind me. It's so in the past. I had a theater company that went from like 1998 and I left it in 2007. And so you left it in 2007? And then it folded in 2010 and I had to do the paperwork, which was terrible. I remember Because I was that. the only person who had to do the paperwork. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, um, and, and then the reason I left it was because I saw myself in the future having a small theater company and they'd say, you know, they're closing Mudbone in the South Bronx today and they've been here for such and such number of years and... The, the leader of Mudbone, who's given his entire life to this nonprofit effort to work with children and produce small works of theater, is being kicked out into the street. And they're, they have a GoFundMe campaign or whatever for him. And I was like, you know what? Screw that. I'm out of here. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you um, something that might be controversial. What's actually. that? Uh, well, what you just said. Yeah. There are other people who started organization, arts organizations or mm-hmm. theater organizations. Good luck to them. And they have their name on it. Yeah. And then they pass away. That's right. And the sh- there's some, you know, significant shifts that happen mm-hmm. in, the, in, in that case. Yeah. Um, so did you feel burdened by Mudbone? Absolutely. Oh. I... Because it's an impossibility to, 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 to keep... Because the not-for-profit industrial complex is broken. Mm-hmm. And like who, who, you know, you're making a choice there. I mean, unless you have a powerhouse board of directors, unless you have access to the, the, the dominant cultures, you know, capital, mm-hmm. um, unless you're doing something that they dig, then you're not going to make it. And so there are people who are found, they come and go, don't they? I mean, people say like, give, give money to my little small rinky dink operation. Mm-hmm. We're doing this great work. And you're like, it's fantastic. I, you know, it's, it's not going to work. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Like you, they, they come and they go. I mean, if, if people want to do that, that's fine. I think it's wonderful. People can do whatever they like, but you know, you just need to face facts. This right. is the 21st century in a, in a hyper capitalistic environment and it costs zillions of dollars, millions of dollars to keep an operation running. And if you can't, if you can't do that, then you're never going to be able to buy a house or have health care, and no one's going to take care of you. Yeah. No one's going to fix that. So I absolutely think it's wonderful if people want to do their own thing they're smarter than me if they can figure out how to do that. Yeah. But I'm not giving my life to that. I'm not giving my life to some rinky dink mission. So, so in a, in a, I'm not, <laughs> but you had it for 10. I mean, you I, were part of it for 10. I did it. I pushed years. it. I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. I realized that I am not the person for that. Mm-hmm. And that those things, Well, what made you start it? Idealism, belief in truth and beauty, mm. Um, the desire to, to create a space. It was a people of color led theater company. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, I was uh, upset with the idea that there were not a lot of, uh, you know, I'd been in a space where I've been working my whole life and I never had a person of color sign my checks, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I, I thought that we could make an impact, that you could create a space for uh, artists of color to create work. It seems so long ago now. Uh, as I mean, many things, it was. It's crazy to think about, but like, it's like it was 20 over years. twenty years ago. Yeah. Oh, like, it is 20, 20 years. Yeah. So oh, you know, more. I mean, people yeah. are doing that kind of thing now. Lord knows how, but they're doing it now, mm-hmm. and more power to them. But I'm not. <laughs> so I was involved for a short period of time. I think it was around the same time. Like when you left, I was like, I'm out. Yeah. I think they, and they had a space just up the street, just up this street. Yeah. They were on Montgomery, 
Montgomery Gardens is what it was called. Uh-huh. They had a they, they Mudbone was in Brooklyn and they I did some plays that. after they had a they had fundraisers and they had shows and mm. they carried on the mission for another three three years or so mm. and then they decided to close up shop mm. and now it's forgotten. Um, well, <laughs> I wonder who it's forgotten to. Well, we produced Deny Gurita's first play. Yeah. In the continuum in the South Bronx. I mm-hmm. think ten people came. Hey. But you know, I'm I'm proud of some of it. Only Fayeda Lampley, who's passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh we did her play Tough Titty uh at Brick, mm-hmm. and which was great. Uh so I mean I learned about producing, I learned about uh, managing uh contracts from you know, mm-hmm. small government contracts and we had our own little after school program at the mm-hmm. Bronx Charter School for the Arts and uh you it's know. Like, yeah all that Mm -hmm. yeah and so i had a lot of it's a great learning experience Mm -hmm. for me it is decades ago um that i started that endeavor and it is that was the first board that i was on was it i'm pretty sure and i remember being like why do what you don't want me i don't Mm. know what you're asking me to do i think you were right for us at the time and i was very grateful to have you i wish i'd known if if i knew now if i knew then what i know now then things would have been different but i didn't know how to keep that organization going um i want to raising the amount of money that was necessary to keep an organization going is is just daunting so that's that's the thing so like i i'm asking because as a wannabe entrepreneur who doesn't have any sort of business expertise at all or experience at all at all. I don't know. You've been working in business for a long, not for profit is a business. Is it not? It is, but I'm not studied in it and I'm not running at the executive level. Like I'm not, that's not, I, yes, I have, I have budgets to maintain, but I don't write the proposals. I give the ideas and I help with the reports, but I'm not the writer of those things. There's a person for that. (laughs) And my, what I think I do well that I've been able to craft is being the spokesperson. So I can help. I can help when it's one-on-one. I can tell you as a funder why this is important and why you're going to want to do it. You should be able to trust me to know that I can do this work. Okay. So that's what I'm good at. And I think that because I have the voice that I have, that's why people think I should be on boards. It's not that I have ideas. It's just that I can say things. I think. Well, we, we we can have a therapy session about how you're <laughs> undervaluing your your, okay. your intellect or and 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 skill set all you like. I mean, you're totally capable of doing any of that stuff. I mean, look at the you know my starting point for all these conversations about whether I'm enough is like Kim Kardashian. You know, I mean, what does she have? She's just got An nothing, ass. nothing but smart. This is America. None <laughs> of that stuff matters. You know. That, 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 look at Lyft and Uber. So as I recall, there were a lot of black and brown people who used to have dollar cars running around mm. and that was illegal. Now, because they didn't have insurance and la la la. Mm. Now you got Lyft and Uber. They don't do it. And, and it's worth billions of dollars. You, you really have to start looking about how the deck is stacked against you. It's not you that is, that, that, it's, it's where you're standing. Mm-hmm. So you say, I want to be an entrepreneur. Oh, if only I had the skill set. You don't really need the skill set. You just need the money. So 
So I need to get an investor. Yeah, you need to get standing next to a zillion dollars and then you can do whatever you like. Because these people don't know anything better than what you know. They don't. They're just half, they're in closer proximity to money. And they're more able to get somebody to give them the money that they need to do their idea. Mm -hmm. But it's very little to do with with skill. Otherwise, we're saying to ourselves that we're stupid. You know, we must be stupid. Otherwise, we would have succeeded. That's a lie. You know, black people are not and I'm always when I say we I'm always I'm always talking because I'm black I'm always talking about like what it actually means when when a when a colleague of color walks up to me and is is talking about how they oh they wish they could do this you know if only I had this I need more of this it's like they don't have that they just have closer proximity to money and people who will give them money Mm. it's not you it's the system it's totally, it's completely stacked against us having anything of our own. That's why black people are still, you know, to the majority, not doing well. Did you look at the latest figures from CUNY, for instance? CUNY had this study where they were looking at housing insecurity and food insecurity amongst people who are enrolled. And it's like above 40%. Yeah. So more than 40% of the students who go to CUNY are like, you know, worried about their housing and worrying about food. And so, you know, people say, well, you know, college is free or you could work harder. It's like, man, how, how, how much of, of, of the wool have they pulled over our eyes that we're still beating ourselves up as a community or as a people for not doing something that's nigh on impossible. They're like, well, Beyonce did it. Okay, great. But it's hard out here Mm -hmm. and I'm doing great. I mean, seriously, mm-hmm. I, I own a house. I've got a mortgage. I got debts and I pay them. I have the Lords of Equity on my side. My credit rating is good. And I'm still, frankly, because I'm always talking to myself when I say these, these, these rants, um, I still look at myself and say, oh, if only you worked harder, if only you were smarter, if only you had more skills. It's a lie. Mm. Ah, it's the accident of birth. Because if I had been born to somebody else in a different skin, you know, and had what I had, I'd be, I'd be a millionaire. How hard could it be? <laughs> I love. This is why I talk to you. This is literally why I talk to you. I think we have to give ourselves credit for I so many it. things for surviving. First of all, if you really go back, you know, you were talking about like, did you, you know, when you were, when you were a kid, you know, did people die during the plague? Yes. So as a black gay man, I can stand here and say, there are a lot of people just like me who didn't make it. I'm either the lucky one or I'm really, really smart because I survived. And there are a lot of people who didn't. You too can do that. And from wherever you're standing, you can look around and say, who is not here, Mm -hmm. who has not made it because survival is not guaranteed. Mm -hmm. It is not. Absolutely not. And anybody who can make it in this culture today has to stop for a moment and say, wow, you are doing something right. And this is just, I mean, when I say anybody, I mean anybody, because this is a, the culture is built around death and it is built around sucking your life force out of you. And it is throwing the easy opportunity to make wrong decisions at you left and right and then blame you for, for, for any of your weaknesses. And you, if you don't have a cushion, if you don't have a safety net, look at, oh, did you read about Nicolas Cage, for instance? Um, you know, in the paper, it's like, the brother is just running around. He got married. He wants to get divorced. He's drunk in public. I mean, if he didn't have money, where would he be? On the street. And people would say, oh, 
look at those terrible choices. But he's fine. He can go get on his plane or go back to his hotel. And there are so many people like that. They are protected by their money. Within this city, you know, if you walk up and down where apartments cost $2,500 for one bedroom and you look at these people and they are sure when they're, as they're walking around that it's something that they did. They're, do, they're working hard and they don't see what props them up. They don't see how that 400 years of, 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 of oppression and exclusion and uh, has, has have, how they've benefited from that. They don't feel any culpability for it. Uh, they're proud of themselves for what they have done and accomplished. And, you know, good for them. But when I look at a, 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 a woman of color, a, a, a person of color walking around in America who, you know, has, has nice shoes on, I am nearly 100% sure that they have had to, they've had to work harder. You know, people of color get less sleep on this planet than white people. People of color in general, black people in America sleep less. Why? Well, because you have to live farther away from where you work. Because you don't have enough capital together to buy yourself a house in the middle of Manhattan, which is closer to your job. You know, you can see that in France. You can see that in America. It's like mm. we get, as a people, get less sleep as a people than white people. And they're still telling, you know, black people you need to work harder. Or why are you making, why are they making those terrible choices, you know? Because they're tired. <laughs> That's why. When you're tired, you mm. make dumb choices sometimes. Whose fault is it? Are you making choices so that you could be less tired? Yeah, making choices that can be less tired. You're making choices mm. because you know life is hard, and mm -hmm. you got you, you, and you need you need something in the moment to get by. And mm. these things are impactful, and you, you just it's it's. But but beyond that, I mean, I think what is. I don't know how you're going to use any of this stuff, Courtney Body. I really don't. I don't even know what we're talking about. But well, I'm getting. To, I'm, we're gonna. We're gonna bring it back. We're, we're gonna, gonna bring it back. This is what happens if we zoom in on something and then we zoom back out. Okay, get a good editor because you're gonna need it. <laughs> I'm the editor. All right. <laughs> Listen hard. Pick pick out some of the jewels and string them together because I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Boy, that man, that man is angry. He's always so no, mad. This, so, so okay. I'm gonna explain very clearly why it's so important for me to have you in my life. Is for these things. One, you make me feel like I'm. Uh, you remind me of all the good things that I am, which is important. I need a pocket version of you, like the pocket constitution. I'm like Courtney Body, you are this. You are that. You are this. Thank you, Michael Wiggins. Nice. Um, you know, and I, 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 I will admit that I probably do this a, a lot more than I would like to admit about that sort of self-deprecating of like, I wish I understood this. Mm -hmm. I wish I did that. I wish I had that skill. It's a lie. Um, I do that. I do that quite a bit actually. Um, and, and so I do that. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll work to try and stop that. Right on. Two, um, you know, this conversation about working harder, um, having less sleep, uh, 400 years. We need to talk about all of those things in relation to teaching artistry and arts education. Okay? Sure. So one, 400 years of inequality.org. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of it? I have. Excellent. Are you, are you, um, you know, this is 2019 is 
marking 400 years. What do you know about Mindy Fuller Love? I don't know anything. Oh, I don't know much about her, but I do like, know I like her. Uh, I met her very briefly at an event at the Ford Foundation earlier this year where she and her colleagues introduced um, the work that they have done in terms of their research and how they're putting out a call for the for various sectors, but the people who are in the room were representing the cultural arts and university sectors of New York city. And, um, you know, so here I am sitting next to Tom Finkelpearl who every time I meet him, introduce myself every time and say, we've met, but you know, I will do that again next week or three weeks from now or whatever. (laughs) He's been doing this stuff a long time. Um, uh, so they're putting out this call to to say, you know, how will you mark it, mark this as an observance and not, you know, uh, dictating or uh, saying how you need to do it or how you would like to do it. But just they showed a few examples of what have what people have already done. Different. Mm. There's the um, University of Orange, which is um, I, I don't know if they're placed anywhere, but it's just it's an entity that is looking at this work and looking at creating social justice and social equity. Um, and so I'm, I'm in this space where I'm like, I'm going to try and figure out how I can observe. And I can also then the other part of this is, you know, how do we look to building or creating a more just and equitable future? Um, so for me, the podcast is the thing I have control over, right? So that's yeah. one place that for right now I'm talking about it is my yeah. my my way of marking it and observing it. And um, perhaps I'll find other ways. And in other spaces that I am, I'm going to try and figure it out. So I'm sure. just trying to be an amplifier, I guess, for right now and see what happens. Technology. Technology, ra- wave, uh, radio waves, et cetera, um, audio rays. And so... So there's that. So that's two. I said there was three, right? What was the other one? Oh, the sleep. So, so there is another podcast. There is a podcast on another product. There's a podcast called art accordingly. And, um, Kwanis Floyd, uh, has, uh, is the cope, a co-host of this podcast that looks specifically at, um, dismantling the systemic oppression that is inherent within the um, nonprofit arts sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's actually a guest on this wow. uh, podcast. Uh, we talked at the National Guild Conference uh, last November. And um, I'm curious. I'm curious about that. Like, you know, going back to the the session that we did at um, face-to-face those two times, we were talking about exactly this, about being people of color in these nonprofit... Uh, navigating white spaces. Industry and navigating white spaces. Yeah. Um, and so... We're still doing it. We're still doing it. So how, you know, how are you... Some of the stories that you had... Um, from your own experience were like, what the mother, what I, that you were, were board members very, who hand you their coats, mm-hmm, very open and sharing. Um, how, you know, you've worked in several organizations. You're, uh, <laughs> your eyes just widened so big. 
You don't have to go into depth about those places, but I'm just curious, like how this is what I'm talking about when I say, you know, what, where, where, what room I'm in, do I change who I am in those spaces? Yes. If you want to survive, you do. Why? Because this is America and you won't get away with it. You can get away with it in the moment, but they will get you. You cannot be. What's to get? What's to get? What are you talking about? Please, if you sell to, you have never, ever, no one, not, there is not one person of color who has ever maintained a position of power in this country who told the truth, the absolute truth. Mm. If we wanted to fix the problems of America, we could fix them. Let's start with that. Oh, if only. You, you think that they'll tell you there's not enough money for such and such. Mm. If only. It's a lie. The whole thing is a lie. The whole thing, the not-for-profit industry has been trying to do this work for how long? The 501c3 came about in the 50s, right? Right after, uh, it was the Brown v. Board and all that organizing. And they said, you know what, we're going to get, okay, all these churches and stuff had advocated. So they said, you know what, we're going to give you this new designation, 501c3, which will allow you then to, you know, to, to define these advocacy efforts as not-for-profit spaces. It's going to save you some tax dollars, right? It's going to save you some of that. Um, but churches can no longer advocate, right? So there becomes this split. They split the community. They split the organizations down, down the middle. So you like, if you work at a not-for-profit, you can, you can work to solve hunger, but you cannot take uh, certain positions, political positions. You can't support a candidate, stuff like that or you won't maintain your 501c designation. So they've undercut the ability of people to organize in really effective ways. Like, Mm. how are you gonna solve hunger if you can't blame somebody? It's somebody's fault. Hunger just didn't, it didn't just happen. People were hungered to death. It's like the conversation around slave and enslaved, you know? Mm -hmm. And the slaves, they're not slaves, they're enslaved. Somebody did it. So we as not-for-profits are not allowed to actually address the problems, or we would have solved the problems because we keep throwing money at these problems Mm -hmm. and stuff does not necessarily, I can really would love for you to point to some place in which it's getting a lot better. In which you're like, oh, and the efforts that we are doing have really improved the situation for, no, segregation is higher now than it was when I was born and I'm like over 50. Right. So students are still not testing well. They can tell you that they're graduating at a higher rate. I don't know, because they split the graduation rate, you know, down the middle. So like career college and career readiness is not the same as the graduation rate. How can you have a higher graduation rate than a college and then 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 ready for college and career rate? You know, why are they graduating if they're not ready for college and career? I thought that was the point. So, you know, this and we're, it's just ridiculous for us to think that this stuff is actually working. So you want to stop in the middle of every meeting that we're in where we're congratulating each other and eating canapes and talking about the work that we're doing and how important the work is and this and all these little minutiae about work and whether or not how we feel. And you go like, oh, my God, somebody needs to stand up and be like, you know what? Oh, my God, it's not working. Something's not working because we haven't solved hunger. We haven't solved health care. We haven't solved climate change. We haven't solved anything. And we're not going to because we don't want to. If we did, we would. It's not hard. And you know what it is? Nobody's willing to sacrifice anything. I'm not. I absolutely am not going to sacrifice myself on the altar of that. The world is not ready for change. Remember when the Buddha came out, came out with this great new product, Buddhism. It was fantastic. It could alleviate suffering. People were like, Buddha, please go out. Preach this to the people. They need it. It saved me. They need it. And Buddha was like, you know what? It won't make any difference. 
And they were like, no, you must. Don't be so. He's like, no, it'll just mess stuff up. He said, no, all of India needs this. And the Buddha said, like, okay, I will go out and spread the word. I'll teach it. But Buddhism will rise and it will vanish from India within a thousand years. Because he had a recognition of how people are. People do not want to be saved. Our culture does not want to be saved. At its heart, this is what we want. We have created our own reality. We are not willing to sacrifice for each other. We really truly do not love each other. If we did, it would not be this way. Love involves sacrifice. Absolutely. All the stories about love that you admire involve sacrifice. And we as a culture, not just you, not you, I'm not pointing toward you, I'm not blaming you, but we collectively mm-hmm. are not need to face the fact that what we are doing is not working and will never work unless we make a radical shift in the way we approach it. And we're not willing to do that. And the problem is our love of capitalism. The problem is our love even probably of individuality and my freedom to do whatever the heck I want, right? We cannot make this work unless we shift all together and all at once. And that can only come from a space of love. I advocate us getting together in smaller groups and trying to address the situation on a local level. I advocate for us within the spaces where we do have power, defending and creating administrative systems, financial systems, practical systems that enforce the laws of love. Mm. All the decisions that you are able to influence, you must advocate for us to make choices based on real love. You got to take the, what, what are the impacts? What are the implications of such and such decision on my work? I go back to that mundane example about where you place a class, right? It's not going to work if you haven't made intelligent decisions about that. Mm. It's not going to work if your idea of personal responsibility is to say that no matter what is happening, still, Bobby, you have to behave in the way you want because of the context that we've created. Well, Bobby is not responding to that context. He's responding to the space of 400 years of oppression and the fact that, you know, go back to the simple basics that you took in school, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. How do you expect a student to do well if they are still worried about their own physical safety, their food, mm. they, they can't make choices choices that you can make about what they want to eat, you know, Mm. all that kind of stuff. If we don't fix that stuff, we're not going to fix anything else. If we think that um, we're at our place of, of, of work and we're going to lie to ourselves and that I am here just because I care so deeply, hooey, ha, you're not there because you care so deeply. You're here for a lot of reasons. You may care deeply, but it's also about paying your rent. It's also about like the fact that America like forged you in whatever way it is and you had to make those choices. You were jimmied into that somehow. You can still operate from a place from love, but you got to also face the, 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 the fact that you're not willing to give up anything in that space. You don't want to lose your job. So you will make decisions and you'll keep your mouth shut and you do it all the time uh, because you know where the money comes from. I like what you're saying about the the local, the small group. Absolutely. It's the only I'm, I, I talk a lot on here about um, ripples of hope and that it is about what's local, what you can actually have control over, only power do over. What you can do. And that that then um, can be an example that somebody else might see and then realize, okay, yes. maybe I can do it. So that that's what I mean by the ripples of yes. hope. And I think ultimately that's what I was talking about, about love and art at the core of, of our practices, mm-hmm. all of our practices. Yeah. Um, and that again, just having impact on what you have around you. Mm-hmm. Um, so in those spaces, 
um, speaking the truth, you know, some of us have different tactics for doing that. Mm -hmm. I like to ask a lot of questions and pretend like they're innocent questions. That works. Um, and sometimes I actually say, it's just an innocent question. They're like, no, it's not. (laughs) It's like, you're right. But still, I don't know what the answer is and I don't know if other people have asked this question, so I'm going to ask it. Yeah. So that's true. And I'm not being combative necessarily, but I am probing. Um, and I would like to recognize instead of coming from a deficit point of view and asset point of view, um, I would like to recognize that I do understand the kind of, uh, power that I, I have. Yes. I will also recognize or acknowledge that I am not aware of how much power I actually have. There, so if you, if you, you know, did the yearbook of people in your position across America, <laughs> just yeah, three or four little black ladies staring out from the screen. I mean, <laughs> there's not a lot of you. Yeah. So how do I harness and not hinder. How do you harness the power that you have? The power and the love. I think. Or how do I leverage? How do you me? leverage it? Yeah. I. You know, I think it's a, there. You have opportunities to leverage your power uh, every day. I think one is thinking about the generation that comes after you and how you're. And I know that you're already doing this, like the handholds, because you introduced somebody to me today, for instance, how mm-hmm. you're uh, introducing people to people, um, especially with an eye toward looking toward uh, up and coming emerging professionals of color, how we're supporting them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can l- leverage your power in those conversations you have when you're uh, crafting proposals to uh, really start looking at um, what the whether or not the the programs are actually addressing the the need that is mm. there so i mean there's this thing of of in that space particularly when an organization wants to do something and they just want to drop it into they think it's valuable uh but it it may or may not be valuable anymore mm. to do exactly what you thought was important i mean how many t- are you going back to the community to ask them what they need and what they want. Mm -hmm. And are you really trying to meet that need or one? Are you just trying to tell them that they need what you got? (laughs) You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. and at some points, and that's where it comes to this point where I'm talking about sacrifice. Like there are some people who shouldn't, there's some organizations and people who should not be taking dollars away from other organizations because nobody needs what you've got. You think they need it, but they don't, they have higher and more urgent needs and the work, the art, Art could be used to address their specific needs. Mm-hmm. Why are we, for instance, and you know, I mean, I don't know, we go back to this thing like art for art's sake. Art for art's sake is wonderful and I'm totally digging it. And I think it's powerful and it worked for me and it's there. But like, I really think in a context in which, for instance, uh, you know, 40%, over 40% of, 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 of students who are trying to get through CUNY uh, don't have what it takes if if there's a choice to be made between art for art's sake and using art to address uh, that that mm-hmm. problem mm-hmm. Uh, then you should go in the way that that actually solves a problem for mm-hmm. them thank you for listening to episode 24 act 2 of teaching artistry with courtney j body michael wiggins art is always the answer join us next time for a conversation with jason das 
Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Brandon Hutchinson is the media arts coordinator. Jana Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org. Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry and on Instagram at Teaching Artistry with CJB. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.